morning again, everybody. Let us uh, begin with a word of prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your amazing grace to us. Thank you for this church family. Thank you for bringing us together this morning. And Lord, we pray as we open your word and we look into um, these deep things that are, Lord, simple and yet beyond our understanding at the same time, that you would illuminate them through your spirit, that you would teach us, that you would feed your sheep. Father, I pray that our Redeemer, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be glorified in what we do, what we say this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. We are in Revelation chapter 3, and I thought we would cover the, the rest of the letter to the church in Philadelphia this morning, and there's just no way. So we're going to have a part three to uh, the church in Philadelphia, which is the one of two churches, as we discussed last week, that has no grievance from the Lord as he addresses them. And this was, as we talked about last week, a church that would be considered by many to be little or insignificant. I don't know if that resonates with you this morning, but hopefully it does. Just because we may be small in number or insignificant by some people's standards does not mean that the Lord counts us to be so. We looked at um, verse 7 in particular, in particular, which was an introduction from the Holy One, there is language here. And, and what, what is really happening in this letter to the church in Philadelphia is a defense from the Lord Jesus on behalf of this church who is besieged by an enemy. And, and that enemy, we'll look at it in, in detail, but this church was being attacked by those who profess to be the people of God, who call themselves Jews. And Jesus defines them as members of Satan's synagogue. Curious um, statement, but Jesus, as you remember, in dealing with the Pharisees, called them uh, sons of Satan. So this is familiar language that he is using here. And our main point of emphasis last week, I'll just touch on it briefly, is that, that John is relating the written word. Jesus commands John to take what he sees and he hears and write it down. And we talked about that in detail, that the fact that at, at the last judgment, when humanity stands before God, there will be three exhibits brought against those who reject and rebel against God. One is the declaration of nature. We find that nature declares who God is so that they are without excuse. The second one is, is the conscience that scripture says bears witness in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. And then, of course, God's written word in which um, he will judge everyone by. And he says in Isaiah chapter 30, to write down, um, this is speaking to Isaiah, write down on a tablet, inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. God will use his word as a judge for humanity. We looked at in detail the statement regarding David, um, Christ holding the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and shuts and no one opens. We talked about that in detail last week. And the key of David, David gets an honorable mention here. Like us, he is a recipient of the eternal covenant. And the scripture reminds us here that God has kept his promise to David. Jesus does with the kingdom what David could not. And the kingdom of David remember we talked about was a type and a shadow of the kingdom of Christ. God made David a promise and the promise is fulfilled in Christ. And so that brings us to point number two. So I want to look this morning at verses eight and nine. We're probably not going to get to verses 10 and 11. I apologize in advance. 
He says in verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus tells them that he knows their works. And you remember, this is used in almost every address to every church. In some cases, it's positive, as we find it here. In other cases, it's a negative. When Jesus says, I know your works, and then he lays out the case against you, when he says, I have somewhat against you, um, it's not good. But when he says, I know your works, and the works of this church are exemplary, this is an incredible encouragement. Um, he says this church, and he uses the word micros in the Greek. It's a micro church, if you will, small church by any standard of human measure. And it's insignificant, but Christ does not overlook this church. When Jesus says, I know your works, he's reminding this little tiny church in Philadelphia, I'm paying attention to you and I know you. You ever ask the question, what significance do I play in the kingdom of God? Have you ever felt insignificant? Yeah. What does what I do matter? And of course, the answer is emphatically yes. I, I found this, this uh, brief article from a pastor in South Carolina by the name of Nicholas Batzig. <clears throat> Very cool last name. And he, and he wrote this for Table Talk. It's called The Little Things. It's The Little Things. He says this, you probably wouldn't see him doing so, but he's faithfully hanging the church sign every Friday night and taking it down every Sunday. You probably wouldn't see her doing so, but she's faithfully coordinating with other, others to ensure that there will be enough food at church gatherings. You probably wouldn't see them doing so, but they're faithfully arriving early on Sunday morning to set up the hospitality table, the book table, and the sound equipment to make coffee, making sure that everything is in place for the worship services. You probably wouldn't see her doing so, but she's faithfully cleaning her home hours before she opens it for a church small group. You probably wouldn't see him doing so, but he's faithfully making hymn schedules and arrangements for the music for the worship services. You probably wouldn't see her doing it, but she's faithfully lining up volunteers for the nursery, training others, and making sure all the nursery needs are met. You probably wouldn't see him doing so, but he's faithfully keeping track of the giving records for the members who themselves faithfully give to the work of the gospel ministry. The list goes on and on, but the point is simple. It's the little things that members of a church or a church plant do that help the ministry thrive and without which the, the growth of the local church would be greatly hindered. During his earthly ministry, our Lord Jesus taught his disciples this principle. In Luke 16, 10, it says, one who is faithful in, in a very little is also faithful in what? Much. The New Testament gives us several examples of individuals who are faithful in small things, and yet those whose faithfulness in small things aided the advancement of the gospel and brought great glory to Christ. Just consider the following. Think about this for a minute. And I'm still quoting. At the wedding in Cana of Galilee, Jesus commanded the servants to fill the pots with water. As Stephen Birch has observed, disobedience would have robbed them of wine. Half-hearted obedience would have yielded them half of the wine. However, the servant's faithfulness in something so trivial ended in their receiving 100 gallons, 180 gallons of the best wine for the entire wedding party. Additionally, Jesus' glory was manifested in this first miracle, which showed forth the joy imparting blessings of the new covenant. The boy who gave Jesus his five loaves and two fish in John 6 was instrumental in the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. Additionally, 12 baskets were taken up to nourish each of the disciples for their subsequent ministerial labors. Thousands were fed and ministers were supported by one boy's small sacrifice. 
More importantly, millions have spiritually fed on Christ by means of this inscripturated account of his miraculous power and grace. The widow with two mites in Mark chapter 12 seemed to have given far less than what those who put in large amounts had given. Jesus said that by giving all that she possessed, she had put in more than all. How many billions have been given to support gospel ministry throughout the new covenant era on account of this woman's act? Her faithfulness in something seemingly small has encouraged others to give in sacrificial abundance for two millennia. Finally, Joseph of Arimathea gave Jesus a dignified burial in his own garden tomb. While it took enormous courage for Joseph to ask for the body of Christ, it was a relatively small thing for a rich man to give up a tomb. In this small act, Joseph played a role in the fulfillment of Isaiah 53.9. Christ's body was not thrown in a fire pit with the criminals next to whom he was crucified. By embalming the body of Jesus, John 19, Joseph participated in the fulfillment of Psalm 16.10. What more could we say? Time would fail me to tell of the two disciples who prepared the upper room. Think about this. The man who gave Jesus his donkey for his entrance into Jerusalem. The individual who brought the imprisoned apostle a pen and paper with which he wrote the letter to the Romans. Small thing, huh? Timothy, who brought Paul his cloak to keep him warm and books to keep him spiritually nourished. The women who opened their homes to the churches that met and worshipped in them, and the individual who hiked to the seven churches spread throughout Asia Minor in order to carry John's revelation to them. God loves to bless the little things his people do. Sometimes they are small acts. And sometimes they only appear to be so. Jesus cares deeply about the little things that his people do to bless others in his church. He takes note of them as precious acts of service. He uses the little things that his people do to carry on his work in the world through his church. May God give all of us grace to cultivate faithfulness in the little things that we do. Be encouraged in the little things that you are doing. They're not insignificant. They matter. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul says this, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. This touches on what Jesse taught us in 2 Samuel 20. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows from the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary in doing good. The word good here is that which is beautiful. It indicates an object that is intrinsically sound in moral or in a moral or ethical sense. The work, the insignificant little work of the church is in the eyes of God beautiful. For in due season, Paul continues, we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are, are of the household of faith. Paul uses the analogy here of sowing. And we know this. For those of you that had a garden this year, you put seeds in or young plants. Did you get discouraged the second day when you went out there and there was no fruit on the vine? No vegetables to pick. Now, we know that when you invest in something, when you sow seed, it takes time. There's not an instant return on investment. And, and Paul's message in Galatians chapter 6 is don't get tired of investing in that which is good or spiritually beautiful. And he contrasts that with those that reap to the flesh. I recently heard a prosperity gospel say this. I give so much to God that I put him in debt to me. Think about that. I don't watch that channel normally. So for those of you who know who this, this person is, I won't call his name out. But this is the, the message of the prosperity gospel. They're telling you to invest in the kingdom of God by giving so much 
that you're going to put God in debt to you. There's so many things wrong with that. But can we ever do anything to indebt God to us? If this man is actually a recipient of grace, um, to have somehow indebted God to him is, is heretical. What are we investing ourselves in? Moms, dads, you are giving the strength of your youth and its fleeting glory to the raising up of godly offspring. As your chin hits your chest, as you sit here and try to stay awake as you listen to me this morning, we know that the labor that you are putting in and the small things to put food on the table to raise your families um, is taxing. What are we investing in? Teachers, preachers of the word of God, labor in the word to provide a spiritual meal. Now you're sitting here and you might push the plate away and say, I don't want to, don't need that. But, but there's much work and labor put into that. And it seems insignificant sometimes. There's not a re, an immediate return on investment, isn't there? Or is there? I related this to Cameron the other day, 18 years ago, or not quite 18 years ago, he was our first. And I've been, we have been feeding him meals since he arrived. And it seems like one meal after another, insignificant. But when you add them all up, it's a lot of food. You could feed probably a whole nation somewhere, a small one, but, and, and look at the results. There is a return on investment long-term in the small things. We need to remember that. Do the hard work where God has placed you. In 2 Thessalonians 3.13, we read, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. It's tempting, isn't it? We get tired. Hebrews 12.3, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. We see the example of our Savior in, in causing us to realize that our work and our labor is not in vain. There's an immense return on on investment. He says, behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. Is that related to the key that we talked about last week? Key, door, is that related? Of course it is. He has the key. What does the key do? It unlocks locks, right? We lock our... Most of you probably locked your house when you left to come here this morning. Um, why? We have locks to keep honest people honest. He has given, he tells the church in Philadelphia, as an act of grace. He says, behold, I have set before you. It means to give or to offer an open door, which no one is able to shut. Who's trying to shut the door? Who's he talking about? Well, the synagogue of Satan is trying to slam the door shut on this little church. And Jesus says, I'm in control of the door. They can't. They can't shut you out of the kingdom. This, this door is the door to the kingdom. And you remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. For a man to enter the kingdom, he must what? Well, first see the door. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, meaning Nicodemus, you can't see the kingdom of God. Why? Kingdom of God comes not with observation. It's not visible. There are physical manifestations of it, but it's not something that we see a castle coming up out of the ground that, that's being built. It is spiritual in nature. And in according to, to Jesus and what he told Nicodemus, First of all, to see it, but secondly, to what? To enter it. You can't enter it if you're not born again. That is, if you're spiritually dead, there is no going through the door. And who controls who is made alive? Jesus does. 
The Spirit of God is sovereign in the work of regeneration. So the door is opened by the one holding the keys to the kingdom. That is the key of David. John chapter 7, verse, or John chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus says, He is the door, that is, He is the way. He said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Um, now, there are um, commentators on this particular passage who you think that the door is not Jesus. It's potentially an opportunity to witness. And, and it's not out of the realm of possibility. But I think it's very vivid here, um, what Jesus is saying to the church in Philadelphia. And co- coalesces with other passages in Scripture. John ch- chapter 10, I just started reading. He says, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. We'll go in and out and find pasture. In Matthew 25, we find the parable of the 10 virgins. The kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins. This is Matthew 25, 1 through 13, who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish. Five were wise. And when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. The oil is what? by the way, Holy Spirit, correct. In other words, these are unregenerate. The bridegroom was delayed. They all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out and meet him. And all of those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. But the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil. For our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since... There will not be enough for us and for you. Go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And listen to what it says. And the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you neither you know neither the day nor the hour. In Luke 13, we find a reference to the narrow door. Verse 22 of Luke 13, he went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. Does this sound like a continuing theme here that Jesus is teaching to those who are around him? I don't know you. Then You will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. Who is this speaking, by the way? Yes, nation of Israel. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out, and people will come from east, west, from north, and south, and recline at a table in the kingdom of God, and behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. There's a a, a serious rebuke here. When he says there will be some that come from the east, the west, the west, and the north and the south, who's he referring to? Thank you. Yes, Daniel, you are awake. Well done. Charles Spurgeon, in his message on the door, said this. He has selected this emblem, meaning I am the door. He has selected this emblem. I should think partly that it may often come before our notice. I want you to think about this. How many times? Today, have you walked through a door? How many times? Count them up. And cars count, by the way. They didn't have cars in Spurgeon's day, so he he leaves that off the list. He said, he, Jesus, has selected this emblem, I should think, partly that it may often come before our notice. 
You will not go out of this place without seeing a door. You will not get, get into your own house without seeing a door. And when you are inside, you will not get into your parlor without seeing a door. And when you go to bed, you must pass through the door. When you rise tomorrow morning and start to go out to your work, you will have to open a door. Two doors, probably. And when you reach your work, there's pretty sure to be another door to be entered. Doors meet your gaze almost everywhere. So our Lord Jesus Christ seems to say to you, I will meet you wherever you are, anywhere and everywhere. I will speak with you and plead with you. I will make the door of every room in your house and the door of every cupboard, too, to preach a little sermon to you, as you shall be reminded by it that I am the door. This is an incredibly simple analogy, isn't it? We all know what doors are. So when Jesus is talking about the fact that he is the door, he's communicating something very profound, but something very simple. The door is open to very specific people. He says that here. His people. He controls it. He holds the key. And through him, we have entrance into the kingdom. That is the presence of God. In Isaiah 22, and I referenced this last week, I want to read this passage to you. This is just a, a brief circumstance that is going on in, in the, the life of Israel, and it's prophetic. And those that Jesus is talking to would have recognized this passage because it's part of the Old Testament. In Isaiah 22, verse 15, it says, Thus said the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here? And whom have you here? that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself. You who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Now, what is he referring to? We don't, we don't carve out tombs in the rock, typically, in our culture. But what is he referring to? If you were carving out a tomb, and we touched on it a few minutes ago with Joseph of Arimathea, what are you? You're very wealthy, right? If you have the means to go to the mountainside and cut out a tomb where you will be laid to rest, you've got means. And here is the man who is currently in charge of Israel at this particular time. And the Lord is rebuking him for this. He says, behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into the wide land. What is the Lord saying? He's going to take this leader who is incredibly strong, wealthy, and powerful, and he's going to crumble him up into a ball and throw him away. And he says, there you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots. You shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day, listen to this, in that day, I want to see if you recognize this, if you're awake. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder, listen, the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. This is the very words that Jesus gives to John in this letter to the church in Philadelphia. J.K. Beale, who is incredibly um, sound in his commentary on, on the book of Revelation, he says, quote, the point of the quotation is that Jesus holds power over salvation and judgment. In Revelation 1.18, the stress is on his sovereignty over death and judgment. In 3.7, where we are, the emphasis is on his authority over those entering the kingdom. John compares the historical situation of Eliakim in relation to Israel with that of Christ in relation to the church in order to help the readers better understand the position that Christ now holds as head of the true Israel and how this affects them. 
The quotation could be a polemic or a strong attack against the local synagogue, which claimed only those worshiping within their doors could be considered God's true people. And which may have been or may have even excommunicated Christian Jews. In this respect, the translation from the Aramaic paraphrase of Isaiah 22 rendered the quotation even more appropriate to the situation of the church. Listen to this. In the original Hebrew or Aramaic, it says, I will place the key of the sanctuary and authority of the house of David in his hand. Did you catch that? I will place the key of the sanctuary and authority of the house of David in his hand. Ethnic Israel, which was claiming to be the divine agent wielding the power of salvation and judgment, no longer held this position. Christ's followers could be assured that the doors of the synagogue were open to them, whereas the doors remained closed to those who rejected Christ. Unbelieving ethnic Israel could not enter the door and find rest because of their unbelief. I want to read, um, and I'm going to give you a lot of scripture here, and I'm, I'm just going to ask your patience to stay with me here because I've, I, I need to read this to you, and I'm taking some time on this because this is incredibly important. What we, what we walk away with in this verse that we're looking at impacts how we understand all of scripture, redemptive history, and the book of Revelation and how we understand its application and interpretation. So it's important. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 17. But with whom was he grieved 40 years? This is referring to Israel in the wilderness. Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest? Now, there is a direct correlation when we read Hebrews with entering and rest. Okay? Remember, Jesus is the door. He is the way. What is on the other side of that door for the nation of Israel was rest, right? The promised land. You're walking for 40 days, wandering in the wilderness. When you reach the promised land, you'll find rest. He says they could not enter into that rest because of unbelief. So we go to chapter four. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it for good news came to us that is the gospel to us just as to them but but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened for we who have believed enter that rest as he has said quote as i swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest although his works were finished from the foundation of the world for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter into my rest. What's going on here? Stay with me. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever, verse 10 of Hebrews 14, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his now, here is the great paradoxic statement in this passage. Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Paul, what are, you, what are you saying here? Let us strive to enter that rest. The word strive there in the Greek means to make haste, to take all zeal, to urge on. So what is he telling them? He's telling the reader with every ounce and fiber of your being and every sense of urgency, make haste to enter that rest. What is that rest? What is that entrance? 
little hint. Jesus said, I am the door. Who is the Sabbath? Not what is the Sabbath. Who is the Sabbath? Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Those who died in the wilderness died because of their unbelief. He said, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of God that we may receive grace and find help or find grace to help in time of need. It is through Christ, our great high priest, verse 15, who is, un, who is not unable to sympathize with all our weaknesses, but was in every respect tempted as we are yet without sin. It is through him that we come into the very presence, the very throne room of God, to find grace to help in time of need. Christ is that Sabbath rest. So Israel, as they were looking forward to the promised land, it was a type and a shadow of their Sabbath Make haste or hurry to believe the words of Christ. This is to gain entrance to the door by what? Ceasing our work. Here is what the synagogue of Satan was telling everyone. What must I do to be saved? What would the synagogue of Satan tell them? And specifically what? What did you have to do to be saved according to the synagogue of Satan? Keep the law. You must obey the law. Well, there's one problem with that. The law is our schoolmaster to do what? To point us to Christ. There's no flesh justified by the keeping of the law. But here is the great lie. They said they were Jews and were not. They were ethnic Jews, but they were working hard. They were working hard. And, and that whole picture in Hebrews chapter 4, where they, where they were not able to enter into, their, into the rest because of their unbelief, is a picture of Christ. They would not cease their labor to keep the law, to, to accrue to themselves their own righteousness in their minds. And what Paul is telling us in Hebrews chapter 4, I believe Paul is the writer here, is that Christ fulfilled the law. Perfectly. He did it on our behalf, and he is our Sabbath. We rest in him. And he uses a picture of creation there where God ceases his work on the seventh day. If Christ is your Sabbath, your rest is in him. And it is for us here and now to enjoy his very good work. What did God say when he finished creation? It's good. It is good. What did Jesus say? And what did the Father say regarding the sacrifice of Christ on the cross? And I asked the, the family this morning, what are the, the, the greatest three words that Jesus says in Scripture? And there are these three words. It is finished. It's, it is finished. And how do we know that the Father accepted the sacrifice of the Son? How do we know that? Because he didn't allow his Holy One to suffer corruption. He raised them up on the third day. It is proof positive that the Father accepted the work of the Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And he poured out his wrath on his Son. And Jesus drank the cup down to the very last dregs of it, every drop. And he uttered the words, the last words of the Lord Jesus before he gave up the ghost, the scripture says. What did he say? It is finished. And his work was good. And here is the synagogue of Satan saying, no, I reject that work. Instead, I am going to offer in the place of the perfect work of Christ, my own righteous deeds. And anyone that disagrees with me, we're going to persecute. We'll put them out. You remember in Exodus chapter 12, as God was finishing his judgment on Israel, well, almost finishing his judgment. What was the last, the last plague? You remember? 
This was the one that hurt. No, we're still in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 12, as God is delivering Israel. Yes. The death of the firstborn. And you remember, as, they, as God institutes the Passover, and the last night that Israel is in Egypt, what are they to do? They're to take a lamb without spot and blemish. They're to kill it. And they're to take the blood and do what? Put it on the door. The doorposts. Is that a picture of anything? I am the door. The bloody doorway was an amazing picture to show Israel, to demonstrate to Israel that the only way to avoid judgment, they avoided judgment that night. Those that obeyed with faith and applied the blood to the doorway, what happened? The death angel passed by their house. Judgment did not fall on them. But what happened the next morning? After the, the nation of Egypt is wailing, Israel wakes up to the, the wailing of Egypt. And what do they do? They walk out through that bloody door into freedom. That picture of that bloody door is a picture of Christ. In Revelation chapter 4, we'll get there eventually. But Revelation 4 opens up with this. And after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open. In heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. In Revelation chapter 4, we're taken into the very throne room. But it begins with that statement. I looked into heaven. This is John, and there is an open door. John is granted permission to come into the very throne room. After that whole ordeal in, in Hebrews chapter 4 recounting Israel's history where they did not enter rest he ends that chapter by saying let us therefore with boldness come into the very presence of God for prayer because he hears us because we have been granted entrance into that rest second part of verse 8 I know that you have but little micros Strength or power, dynamis in the Greek. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. He acknowledges their smallness here, but it, it is not inconsequential. And I could not help when I thought of little and powerful. What comes to mind? Mighty Mouse, of course. Back in the, the 80s, I think Mighty Mouse is no longer on the, the scene, but back in the early 80s, that was one of my favorite cartoons. I was just a wee lad. Mighty Mouse. Small, but incredibly powerful. They had kept his word and had not denied his name. What is this referring to? Well, they had kept their profession faith and their assurance in Christ while they were being told by the synagogue of Satan, you're pursuing the kingdom of God all wrong. You're missing the mark church of Philadelphia. They kept the name of Christ and his word. What would this accomplish? Well, it would be used to make ethnic Israel jealous. We'll get to that in just a second. I want to move into verse nine. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue, the assembly, or place of assembly of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. As I said, this verse is vital to our understanding of redemptive history. God's covenant and even how we are to understand the book of Revelation and even all of scripture is hinged on this. And this is a hotly debated question here. Who is Israel? How would you answer that? Who is Israel? You'd say, well, that's kind of obvious, isn't it? Well, there is, uh, as I said, much debate over it. There are some that believe that there are two covenants that God deals with the nation of Israel with one covenant and the nation or the, the church with a different covenant that the church is saved by salvation, by grace, through faith, 
the work of Christ. And that's how salvation is established for the church. But in the covenant with Israel, there's a different covenant. There's a different way to heaven. Is that right? Are there two covenants? Well, if that were true, then we should not take the gospel to the nation of Israel, should we? Because we'd be wasting our time if they're merely to keep the law for salvation. Who sets the term for salvation? Is it by keeping the law or is it by faith? There's also this concept called replacement theology. I don't know if you've heard of that or not, but the idea that, that um, and this is dispensational moorings, if you will, but the idea that the nation of Israel rejects God, so God turns to the Gentiles more or less an afterthought, and the church, meaning the Gentiles, believing Gentiles, replace Israel. What's wrong with that? Well, lots. But So scripture is not silent on this, but it's incredibly important that we understand this. Who is Israel? Who is Israel? Turn with me, if you will, to Galatians chapter 3. I've got to give you more scripture on this, and, and we're almost done. We're pretty close to being done, I promise. Hang with me. Who is Israel? Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? How does the Holy Spirit come to indwell us? Paul said, was it because you obeyed the law? Or was it through faith that the Spirit of God indwells you? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So what, what was going on with the church in Galatian, Galatia? There is this enticing premise that somehow they could enhance their standing with God as Christians by keeping the law. Okay, we would refer to this in our context as what? Legalism. Now, there is a command from God to be ye holy as I am holy. Well, how do we achieve that holiness? Well, let's set up a list of rules, shall we? Matthew, you need a shorter haircut. I need to shave my beard. We can, we can make up a whole list of things to establish our own righteousness. But he says, you started in the spirit, now you want to end in the flesh. What's wrong with this picture? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So we asked the question just a minute ago, how were people saved in the Old Testament? How were people saved in the Old Testament? This is critical. Listen to what Paul says in verse 6 of Galatians chapter 3. Just as Abraham, what was Abraham in the Old or the New Testament? See if you're awake. Old or no? Somebody? Give me something. Thank you. Old, yes. Correct. Yes. Very good. Just as Abraham believed God and what? It was counted to him as righteousness. How was Abraham saved? By faith. Anyone that was saved in the Old Testament was saved the same way as we are today. How? By faith. They were looking forward to the coming Messiah. We're looking backward. The only difference between us today and them then is time. But it's the same God, the same salvation, the same faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him as righteousness. Know then that it is those, listen to this, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Wait a minute. We just read in Hebrews chapter 3 that there perished in the wilderness a multitude of ethnic Jews. Why? Because of unbelief. Well, what is, what is Paul saying here? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Who is Israel? 
Who is Israel? Come on, work with me here. Those of faith. What? Those of the household of faith. Yes. For, in the scripture, for seeing that God would justify the Gentiles. No, wait a second. Are you saying, Paul, that this is not an afterthought, that God would justify the Gentiles, that it was prophesied all along, that the Gentiles being grafted in is not a plan B, but it was God's sovereign plan from the beginning? That's exactly what Paul is saying. In the scripture, for seeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those that are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, growing up in the area, era in which we live, it has been political platforms everywhere to say, if you are good to the nation of Israel, guess what? God's going to bless you. It's been a political platform for years, decades. But they're missing the point. When God says, I will bless all the nations with Abraham's seed, who is he referring to? Just like David, Abraham was a recipient of the covenant. And who is the seed of Abraham by which the nations would be blessed? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, who is of the seed of Abraham. In fact, the opening verse in the book of Matthew refers to Jesus as both the son of David and the son of Abraham. He is the fulfillment of that promise. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. This is referring to the Old Testament system, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian. The uh, KGB uses the term schoolmaster. The law was our guardian, our schoolmaster, our teacher, until Christ came. What is Paul saying here? Galatian church, the law was never given as a purpose to establish righteousness. It was given as a teacher to point you and those in the Old Testament to Christ. When we share the gospel with someone today, do we use the law? Is the law relevant? Absolutely it is. Because the law points sinners to Christ. There is no need for Christ if there's no sin, is there? The law was a schoolmaster to point forward Christ. In order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Do we need to reestablish the temple? We need to start raising sheep. So that we might sacrifice them? No. Christ has come. The guardian is no longer needed. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you, listen to this, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither what? Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Wait a minute. There's not two covenants? No. And if you are Christ, listen, here's, here's the, the nail in the coffin. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Romans chapter 9. And our time is, is quickly fleeting by. I'm just going to highlight this for you. Uh, Romans chapter 9, 22 through 10, 1 through 4. Um, in verse 25 of Romans 9, he says, as, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. Who is that? Gentiles. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. What did Jesus say to the church in Philadelphia? I am going to teach the synagogue of Satan that I love you. I'm going to teach them that I love you. Paul says regarding ethnic Israel in, in Romans 10.1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Is Paul a Jew? Yes, he's of the tribe of Benjamin. Is he concerned about his brother, 
brothers according to the flesh? Absolutely. And by the way, think about this for a second. The teaching of separate covenants, if you will, that's, that's wormed its way into the evangelical church has become very popular since that, that guy that killed a lot of Jews. So that if you were to stand in the pulpit and preach what scripture says, as it says it, one could be viewed as what? Anti-Semitic. That's not what Paul is saying here. He said, it's my heart's desire that they be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Who knew better than Paul about having a zeal for God according to the flesh? but not according to knowledge for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking, listen, to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes case closed. And Paul continues this argument in Romans 11, when he says, has God rejected his people by no means? For I myself am an Israelite. Did God save Paul? Of course he did. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. But you continue reading here down to verse 11. And and he's referring to what was was prophesied by David. And David says in verse 9, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So this picture in the church of Philadelphia, when Jesus says, I'm going to make them come and bow before you. It's this, this exact picture. They're going to be jealous. Because I control salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord, not those who keep the law and establish their own righteousness. So to answer the questions, the church is true Israel. And who is in the church? Abraham, David, Paul. And if you believe today, you and I. True Israel is the church. The church is true Israel. Those of faith are the children of Abraham. Salvation was never attained by the keeping of the law, but by grace through faith. There is one covenant. We call it the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Noahic covenant. Guess what? It's all one covenant. They are recipients of the same covenant that you and I are participating in. And who established and kept the covenant for us? Because we couldn't. Christ. God did not replace Israel with the church. This was his sovereign plan all along. And Paul ends this this whole argument in Romans 11.33 when he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. What is Paul saying? How do we add this all up other than to stand in absolute amazement? He says, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your, before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Nothing is sweeter than to hear the words of Christ where he says, I love you. And when you know that, and that truth belongs to you, is there anything better? Because if he loves me, what else matters? And those birds are so cheap. In our culture, aren't they? It's so easy for somebody to say, I love you. How do we know they mean it? Action. Jesus said, husbands, love your wives. What? As Christ loved the church and had emotion for it? Had feelings for the church? No. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. I would submit to you that we as husbands have not begun to love our wives as we ought to until we learn to love our wives like Christ loves the church. And how is that? Sacrifice. Just like Jesse taught in, in Bible study this morning, if we are not killing sin, if we are not at war with ourselves, we're not loving our wives. If we're not laying down our lives for our wives, how do we do that? If we truly love our wives, we're killing self. We're waging war against sin. We are laying down our lives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That's love. And that kind of love we don't begin to understand until the process of sanctification takes hold in our lives. We can say, I love you. and We can mean it. But listen, the unbelieving have no concept of what love is. They can't. They can't. They can't. And as Christians, until we begin to perceive the love of Christ for the church, we can't begin to perceive how we ought to love our wives. But Jesus said, I will show them that I love you. And how did he do that? By creating an opening. By, by being the open door, he demonstrates to the synagogue of Satan that he loves church. I said to you, what are the three greatest words of Christ? It's not, I love you. And as sweet as that is, if Jesus hadn't have been willing to go to the cross because he loved the church, he would never have said the words, it is finished. And if Jesus didn't say the words, it is finished, what would that love mean to you and I? Oh, it might feel good might be great to know, wow, somebody loves me. But if he hadn't done the work, the good work, the it is finished work, and drank the cup of the wrath of the Father down to the last drop, Jesus loves the church and he gave himself for it. In Isaiah 43, 4, Isaiah says, for I am the Lord, your God. This is God speaking to Isaiah, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you because you are precious in my eyes and honored. And I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. This is the meaning of what Jesus is telling the church in Philadelphia, I will bring them before you. They will see that I love you because I have given myself for you. My question this morning, the entrance and rest are directly linked. Without going through that door, there is no rest. When Jesus says in John chapter 10, all that come through the door will, will go into pasture. If you're a sheep, there's nothing better than a green pasture, is there? Read Psalm 23. My question for you this morning is, are you hurrying to rest in Christ? Are you hurrying to rest in Christ? Anybody tired this morning? Are you tired this morning? Be rejuvenated in Christ. He is our Sabbath. He is our sustaining grace. And while we're busy with the little things, and they're important, and they exhaust us, and nobody sees it sometimes, and nobody thanks us, nobody thanks you, know that he is our Sabbath rest. Has he provided your entrance into his kingdom, or are you working to get there on your own? If you're working to get there on your own, you will be exhausted with no rest in sight. It is an unbearable burden and a wall that we cannot climb. We must go through the door. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder that you are the way, the truth, and truth and the life, that none of us can come to the Father except through you. Lord, I pray 
that if there are any here this morning that are seeking to get to you on their own terms, that the, the Spirit of God would convict them this morning, that they might turn to you and rest in the finished work of our Savior. Lord, we thank you that you have done everything to provide us the righteousness that makes us fit to be in your presence, to be able to come boldly to you. I pray, Lord, that as you take us from here this week, that you might help us to avail ourselves of the privilege of coming into your presence in prayer to seek help. Lord, we're tired. We're weary. We need your strength. We need your grace. And we ask that we would not be shy in asking for your help. Just empower us as we go from here this week to serve you, to glorify you in all that we do, in the little things as well as the big things, Lord. We ask this in your name. Amen.